Wasn't it just a storybook over which I had fallen a doze in a dream? No, it was a big, ugly, antique but convenient house, embodying a few features of a building still older, half-displaced and half-utilised, in which I had the fancy of our being almost as lost as a handful of passengers in a great drifting ship. Well, I was strangely at the helm. Hello, I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. We also hear from two experts, Dara Downey and Jonathan Warren. At the start of the episode, we heard a clip of Tuppence Middleton reading from the first chapter of the novella. This comes courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. All right, I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Henry James. And I'm going to tell you a little about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. Erica, tell us, please, about Henry James. Henry James was born on the 15th of April, 1843, in New York City. He was the second of five children born to Mary and Henry James Sr., and theirs was a remarkable family. Henry Jr.'s elder brother was the influential psychologist and philosopher William James. The James children grew up moving schools frequently and spending time in Europe with various tutors as part of their father's educational experiments, before the family settled in Newport, Rhode Island, and later Boston. This early cosmopolitan perspective would shape the rest of Henry James's life significantly. The first of James's 112 short stories, A Tragedy of Error, was published anonymously in 1864 after which he began publishing stories and reviews more frequently, and under his name. He traveled to Britain and Europe in 1869 for a year, and mixed in intellectual circles, even meeting George Eliot. This trip would prove formative for James, and he moved across the pond permanently in 1875, living first in Paris and then in London. He would be based in Britain for the rest of his life. Many of James's stories focus on the experiences and consequences of Americans' encounters with Europe, the clash of the new and the old worlds. And he rendered them with wit, psychological insight, and descriptive skill. His first novel, Watch and Ward, was published in installments in 1871 in The Atlantic. In the ensuing years, his reputation as a novelist and astute literary critic grew though not without some setbacks like his rather unsuccessful foray into the theatre. He struggled with rheumatism in his right wrist, which made writing painful. So, from 1897, he dictated his novels to an amanuensis, as he liked to call it, 
It was a funny word that he used instead of like secretary or something. <laughs> this changed his writing, ushering in a more arguably impressionistic style. Through novels like The Portrait of a Lady, What Maisie Knew, The Ambassadors, and The Wings of the Dove, James was immensely influential as a kind of forerunner to literary modernism. He was a strong influence on T.S. Eliot's early poetry. That's a foreshadowing of the next episode of Literate. <laughs> that said, his novels never quite gained a wide popular appeal, though they seem to have been endlessly inspiring to filmmakers who have adapted many of his stories for the screen multiple times. Oxford awarded him an honorary doctorate in 1912, he became a naturalized English citizen in 1915 and was appointed to the Order of Merit in 1916. James never won the Nobel Prize for Literature, but was nominated in 1911, 1912, and 1916. He died on the 28th of February, 1916. As for Cat Corner, <laughs> Alicia, I'm sorry to say yet again, James was a dog person. <gasps> <laughs> he had a terrier named Tosca and then a Dachshund named Max. And Max seemed to be an extraordinary dog, or at least Henry James loved him extraordinarily much. <laughs> In letters, he initially described Max, the Dachshund, as, quote, hideously expensive and undomesticated, <laughs> but with a pedigree as long as a Remington ribbon. Later, however, he spoke of, this is also a quotation from a letter, the precious little person of my Dachshund Max, who is the best and gentlest and most reasonable and well-mannered, as well as most beautiful small animal of his kind. A friend of mine who visited uh, Lamb House in Rye, Sussex, which is where Henry James lived for a while, said that there's a corner of the garden where the dogs are buried and there are plaques on the walls that commemorate them. And that the garden is one of the most special places about the house. And that's enough for me. Alicia, tell us about the turn of the screw. As Erica indicated, the story was initially written down by the stenographer William McAlpine, as James dictated it to him in 1897. It was first published serially in Collier's Weekly between January and April of 1898. Later that same year, it was published by Heinemann in a collection with another story, Covering End, under the title The Two Magics. According to Wikipedia, The Turn of the Screw has been adapted more than any other of James's stories. It's been adapted more than 28 times into film, television, music video, and opera productions. So what is it that keeps people coming back to this story? Well... It was a dark winter night, and a group of friends <laughs> had gathered around a fire telling stories, ghost stories. One told a story in which a ghost appears to a child, and all agree that the real, quote, turn of the screw, end quote, in such a story is that it introduces the corruption of innocence, of youth. There's something moral, psychological, spiritual here. Another character, Douglas, gradually reveals that he has a story to tell, which turns the screw even further, for in it the ghosts appear not to one but to two children. That's the initial context or framing narrative within which a most chilling ghost story is told. The story centers on a governess who takes up a peculiar post, caring for two orphans in their uncle's remote country estate, Bly, which she gradually comes to believe is haunted. 
She tells the tale in the first person, and it frequently draws attention to areas of ignorance and ambiguity. The sensation when reading it is that what's important is not easily seen. The governess comes to believe that two prior caretakers of the children who have both died are haunting the premises with the aim of morally corrupting the children. Eventually, she also believes that the children, who are named Miles and Flora, are much further corrupted than she had initially feared, and that they are themselves involved in an elaborate ruse to keep her in the dark regarding the intimate relations they share with the ghosts. But should we really take her word for it? The suspense and intensity of the story are connected with the profound ambiguity it sustains throughout and the limitations of the governess's first-person narration, recounted secondhand as a fireside ghost story. For all of this governess's claims about wishing to protect the children, as we read the story, we see that she is the one who rarely lets them out of her sight, who idolizes them in discomforting ways, and who rationalizes her acts by making claims to seeing ghosts that others say they do not see. So what do we make of the book's final scene? When she is alone with Miles, the boy under her care, as he dies suddenly, purportedly at the hand of a ghost. We are delighted to start off with an extended reflection on the turn of the screw from Dara Downey. Dara lectures at Trinity College Dublin and Dublin City University, as well as at the Dunleary Institute of Art, Design, and Technology. She is the author of American Women's Ghost Stories in the Gilded Age and editor of the Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies. So who better to tell us about Henry James's little ghost story? I think in lots of ways, Henry James's novella, The Turn of the Screw, is one of the things that made me really work out what it was that I wanted to focus on in my academic research career generally. I first read it in the very first year of my PhD, and I remember sitting in the library in Trinity College Dublin with a walloping great anthology of American Gothic tales. And I'd known for a while that I should read The Turn of the Screw, but it had taken me a while to kind of get around to it. And I think I just lost the whole afternoon to it. I had one of those reading experiences where you look up at the end and you kind of look around you going, oh my God, has nobody else experienced what I've just experienced? This is just gobsmacking. It's unreal. And I've been sort of thinking over the last few days why it is that it had that effect on me. And I think some of it is because it is just the most or at least one of the most ambiguous texts ever. It's so hard to tell what's going on, what anyone means. People continually interrupt one another. And that, as a reader from when I was a very small child, it always annoyed me when people interrupted each other because I was like, what did they want to say originally? You have no idea what they wanted to say. And this whole text is just like that. It's about people jumping in, making assumptions about things, never really knowing kind of what they actually mean about anything. It's also very, very creepy. It's very well written. And I think a lot of that is part of what makes this a text that has really sort of stood the test of time that is continually adapted for the stage and for the screen, the small screen and the big screen. And that continues to frighten people, I think, to this day. 
the whole kind of thing about the story is that we're getting all of this in a first person narration from the governess, which has been written down by the brother of another girl who she ended up being the governess to after the events of the story. And so there are kind of layers and layers of text between us and the truth. We're never going to get the truth of any of this. And her perception of what's happening is also very limited. And I think that this is part of what makes the story so very eerie. We don't get any kind of bird's eye view of the events. Everything is done through the governess, who's very young, very inexperienced, very unsure of what's going on around her. She becomes convinced that the two ghosts of Peter Quint and Miss Jessel are trying to corrupt the children in some shape or form. We don't really know how. And one of the things I think that has made the book so fascinating to readers and to critics and to academics alike is that it's very easy to read whatever you want into this apparent corruption that the governess thinks is happening to the children. I mean, at various points over the years, people have thought that it's something to do with sexuality or child abuse, but really it could be absolutely anything because we're never told. And this was something that Henry James claimed to have done very deliberately. He says in his preface that if you tell the reader what's going on in a ghost story, you lose the whole effect. So he wants the reader to imagine the evil for himself. It's pretty much what he says. And we do. And I think in a way, what we project onto the text at various points in time tells us a lot about that age or that era. I think one of the things that I was really thinking about before I came to this is what makes a good ghost story. And in a way, that's a very difficult question. I mean, I've read a lot of them and some of them are funny. Some of them are weepy. And then, you know, there are some kind of slightly silly ones. But really, ultimately, I think what we want in a ghost story is to be afraid. And for me, there are kind of three things that we're potentially afraid of. And as far as I'm concerned, the turn of the screw manages to keep all of them going the whole time. First of all, as with the governess in this, you can imagine yourself as a protagonist in a ghost story and you see something or someone where nobody should be. You know that you're alone in the house and then suddenly there's someone standing in a corner staring at you. And a couple of things happen all at once when something like this happens. First of all, you start to doubt yourself. Say, can I trust my senses? Can I trust my perception, my understanding of what I'm looking at? And if I can't trust my senses and my perception, then what does that say about me? Am I losing control of my mind? Is nothing else that I'm seeing or hearing actually real? What have I been doing for the last however long? So you lose that sense of trust in yourself, but you also lose sense of your trust in the world. Because one of the things that often frightens people in ghost stories is that they suddenly realize that everything that they think is true isn't the case anymore. That you think that you're living in a world where some things are real and some things are impossible. And if the impossible is now in front of you, then your entire worldview has just been shaken. And how do you deal with that? And then, of course, the third thing is that so you've lost trust in yourself, you've lost trust in the world, but also the ghost might do some really bad stuff to you. You never really know what's going to happen with a ghost. If yourself and the world have completely fallen apart, then everything is up for grabs and you might find yourself in real serious danger. And as far as I'm concerned, the turn of the screw does all three all at once.
Erica? Yes, Alicia. How did you find the book? So much of the impact of this novella and this story is in the telling of it and the reader's experience of the narration, the writing, I think. I'm almost a bit embarrassed to say that I found it a really difficult read and I read it, I had to read it twice. It's not very long, so it's easy to read it through a couple of times. But I haven't read Henry James for a little while. And I think I was my my mind, my eye was not fit for it. So there's something about Henry James's kind of later style that's like the late 1890s onwards, where he really just gets deep into the compound sentences. There are clauses within clauses and parenthetical statements all over the place. And you really have to concentrate to read this. Okay, so I just want to give you an example or an example to people listening of the kind of thing I'm talking about. So this comes from really early in the story when the governess has just arrived at Bly. She's just been introduced to the room that's going to be hers. Okay, so here's the quotation. The large, impressive room, one of the best in the house, the great state bed, as I almost felt it, the figured full draperies, the long glasses in which, for the first time, I could see myself from head to foot, all struck me like the wonderful appeal of my small charge as so many things thrown in. I don't know if it comes through in saying this, how many commas and parenthetical hyphenated <laughs> statements there, there are in this, but there's just a lot of little bits that you have to kind of keep together in your mind as you're reading it. So that that was my experience reading it, actually, a lot of it. In terms of the kind of craft of it, James is complex like that. And mm. maybe it was because he was dictating this out to his amanuensis. I also felt that that was a choice he's making about narrative voice, because so much of this story, all of it except for the frame narrative, is told in the first-person narration of the governess. So I thought... This is telling me something about her state of mind, her frame of mind, that she's always kind of, her mind is flitting Mm -hmm. and going back on itself and fitting things in. And there's a kind of a jumpiness about it and about the experience of reading it. That strikes me as really well observed, not least because the first sentence of the governess's narration is, I remember the whole beginning as a succession of flights and drops, a little seesaw of the right throbs and the wrong. And that's the end of the quote. You said flits instead of flights, but you were describing that exact sensation. And the language of dropping happens frequently Mm. in the story. The aesthetic thematic is almost introduced in that initial sentence for the way that the story then unfolds. Something being held back and revealed, flights and drops, exaltation in the children's beauty, and then terror in their moral depravity potentially is how the governess recounts her time there. And so I think that was really well observed on your part and and really fits well with what James himself seems to set out to the start of her narrative. So was that your your experience of reading it? I mean, what was your experience of reading it? I really enjoy the nuance and ambiguity and aesthetics of James. But I also don't like those things in a way because Mm -hmm. they are unnerving or they can be. And certainly in this text. And... 
Part of the reason this text is so powerful is because of the layered ambiguity as to the relationship of good and evil and the reliability of perception. And those are, if you really slow down and let yourself get immersed in the language, those are fairly chilling themes. And perhaps they were, especially mm. in their time. Maybe they've, I don't know how they fare if people are as concerned about good and evil today as they were in the 19th century or in the same ways. So I appreciate the artistry that makes it an effective thriller, but I think I don't enjoy being <laughs> thrilled in that way. <laughs> I think unnerving is a really good word for the feeling of reading this because it's told through the governess's perspective. And there is this ambiguity constantly. Are the ghosts real? Are they figments of her imagination? Is she mad? Is she bad? Mm -hmm. Who's innocent and who's not? But so much is unsaid or almost said, or, you know, there's a kind of intangibility about what's going on. Like the governess is always sort of stopping short of saying things. Everything is very intangible and kind of nebulous. So there's this kind of looming, just question mark everywhere. It's a bit sort of misty. And mm -hmm. I don't find that horrifying. I find mm -hmm. it kind of frustrating, mm -hmm. but I can get how that works in terms of horror and I can get that that is unnerving and it's frustrating because it's unnerving. And that I think is really interesting what's going on. There's a moment actually where the governess, where she's talking about how she and the children are engaging with each other as though they all have this tacit knowledge that I know about the ghosts and you know about the ghosts and I know that you know about the ghosts and you know that I know that you know about the ghosts. And I feel like when she's describing this, it describes something of the feeling of reading this novella. Mm. So I'm going to read a quotation. The element of the unnamed and untouched became between us greater than any other, and that so much avoidance couldn't have been made successful without a great deal of tacit arrangement. It was as if, at moments, we were perpetually coming into sight of subjects before which we must stop short turning suddenly out of alleys that we perceived to be blind, closing with a little bang that made us look at each other, for, like all bangs, it was something louder than we had intended, the doors we had indiscreetly opened. And then later in that same section, she said, I approached it from one side and the other while in my room I flung myself about, but I always broke down in the monstrous utterance of names. As they died away on my lips, I said to myself that I should indeed help them to represent something infamous if by pronouncing them I should violate as rare a little case of instinctive delicacy as any schoolroom probably had ever known. So, you know, there's this kind of stopping short of saying things because to say it is too monstrous. Yeah, and that's connected, I think, with what to a certain sensibility is chilling about this story, which mm. is really well put. I think in T.J. Lustig's, he, he quotes The Independent in his introduction to the Oxford World's Classics edition. This was a review in 1899, which said, The Turn of the Screw is the most hopelessly evil story that we have ever read in any literature, ancient or modern. And then, Ooh. yeah, what a quote. And then Lustig elaborates on this by saying, Unsure whether to blame the ghosts of the tale or James himself for the story's, quote, refined subtlety of spiritual defilement, end quote, the reviewer's response foreshadows in its uncertainty as well as its ferocity, the mystification and intense disagreements which have surrounded this intriguing tale ever since. And that's the end of the quote from Lustig about the review. And I think what he's touching on 
is what is so unnerving and potentially sort of wicked that a certain kind of reader almost wants to avoid in this story, much like the governess wants to avoid in what she says. And that's something about spiritual defilement. And I'm not sure how well that maps into contemporary sensibilities. I'm not sure yeah. if different cultures today or popular culture in America, at least today, really share that feeling of horror at spiritual defilement or the spiritual defilement of innocence. Yeah. I think it gets coded in different ways. We have our own moral panics and our own moral horrors. I mean, look at QAnon and the thing of like the pedophiles and Pizzagate and sex trafficking. These are real concerns that are elevated and contorted in weird ways into in, moral panics. But those are physical defilements, right? Physical defilements that have a moral aspect. And in this book, mm. oh, until the very ending, we don't have anything physical. The horror that she describes is impalpable in a way. But we're not sure, right? I mean, that's part of the ambiguity. Like I've read commentary that suggests that for James's readers, the implication that perhaps this is a story of child sexual abuse might have been incredibly clear through the implications being made. Yeah, there was a whole Freudian interpretation. So that also might be a more contemporary reading where that's the kind of thing that would count as horrific for us, perhaps more so than the idea of a kind of a spiritual defilement. The difficulty is we don't know what kind of innocence in what way has been violated, you know? Yeah. And what kind of threat is looming and is the threat external in these ghosts, which is what the governess seems to suggest, or is it external to the children in her or internal to the narrative in her? Yes. Yeah. You're absolutely right that there's an ambiguity about what is the horror. She describes it without pinning it down, but maybe it's unspeakable in that way. And so- is it connected to something material? And of course, there is the reading that all of this is her projecting, basically, onto external figures, her own difficult urges or impulses that she doesn't know how to deal with and that she needs to repress. I think to reduce it to one thing or another is to take away from the power of the story and really do it an injustice, because that is the point, really, is that this thing just sort of looms. She certainly does jump to conclusions, though. Well, the point in one of the accounts I was reading is that she shows the risks of an overly dogmatic reading, an overly committed hmm. reading, and she doesn't hold open the ambiguity. And, and that is what James achieves. He achieves the subtlety of writing that allows for questions and interpretations from all different angles. And in that way, while holding open this kind of, or while existing in this liminal space, which is kind of like the fog or the dusk in the dawn times mm. in which apparitions often appear, there's something that's sustained, the ambiguity, the ambiance of in-betweenness, border crossing, that a too strong a reading will close down. I think you're exactly right in saying that the governess is guilty of giving too determinate a reading. There's the scene that happens at this body of water at Bly, where Flora has wandered off by herself and the governess and Mrs. Gross, the housekeeper, go to find her and they find her there. And they clutch Flora and then the governess sees Miss Jessel, the 
ghost of the previous governess just standing and staring. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the first time where she feels like, yes, they're both here. The ghosts here. You can see this. They can see it. And her narration of this moment is really interesting for how she says something definitively. She says... She was there, so I was justified. She was there, so I was neither cruel nor mad. She was there for poor, scared Mrs. Gross, but she was there most for Flora. Okay. And she's so excited that she can actually say, there she is. She describes Mrs. Gross's dazed blink across to where I pointed, which struck her as showing that she too at last saw. You know, suddenly she sees. And then a moment later, Mrs. Gross is like, what are you looking at? Mm -hmm. Flora says, gets completely terrified of the governess and says, take me away from her. Like, Mm. there's nothing there. It's terrifying. And of course, it's ambiguous. But we see the gap between what's going on and what we're being told of it by the responses of the other characters. Then they, they go back to the house and she blanks out for a bit. She said, of what first happened when I was left alone, I had no subsequent memory. I only knew that at the end of, I suppose, a quarter of an hour, an odorous dampness and roughness, chilling and piercing my trouble, had made me understand that I must have thrown myself on my face to the ground and given way to a wildness of grief. So then we're thinking, is she having memory lapses? Mm. What's going on here? Is she overcome by emotion or is there something more sinister going on within her? And the the governess accounts for this by attributing to Mrs. Gross a desire to please the child. And there's always the willingness to ascribe to others. They're sort of in on it together. She's telling the truth and they're choosing not to. And that's a really great example of the kind of ambiguity, the way that James sustains the ambiguity in this text. To what extent is she a reliable narrator? Should we trust her account? Mrs. Gross shortly thereafter actually takes Flora away at the governess's prodding, but it's what leaves the governess alone then with Miles, which leads to his death. And so there's a pretty sharp capacity for reading the governess's role and her reliability in at least two different ways. One of the reasons that's powerful as well is that prior to this, the governess has gone to Mrs. Gross and and she's been her one confidant about the visitations of the ghosts and about her theory that the ghosts are a threat to the children and then that they're in league with the children. And Mrs. Gross always acts as a sounding board that the governess then describes as confirming to her that she's not mad, that uh, this must be true, you know. And then in this moment that you're drawing out, we have maybe the most acute experience of wondering whether those conversations are functioning quite in the way the governess thinks they are, claims that they are. Is Mrs. Gross really convinced by her? We know that Mrs. Gross had supported or hadn't intervened when the purported ghost, Quint, had been around and been a bit wicked, acting in ways she didn't approve of, but she didn't feel it was her place to intervene. So now when we have the governess making claims that presumably Mrs. Gross agrees with, couldn't she also, to a certain extent, be holding back? That's a slight possibility, perhaps. Mm. Because those kind of power relationships of class are very much front and center in the novel, whose place is what, not going above your station. The big scandal of Miss Jessel and Peter Quint is that they were of unequal rank, essentially. And that is maybe a moment to just note a slight connection, which is actually bigger than this, but with our 
last novel that we covered, Why Sargasso Sea, and its interlocutor, Jane Eyre, there's definitely this quote, for me it's on page 312, where the governess is sort of early in her stay and she wonders, quote, was there a secret at Bly, a mystery of Udolfo, or an insane, an unmentionable relative kept in an unsuspected confinement, end quote. Yes, shout out Jane Eyre. And that firmly sets this story within a history of Gothic literature. Udolpho is a reference to Anne Radcliffe's novel, The Mysteries of Udolpho, which is one of the archetypal Gothic literature founding texts. So James is very consciously situating this in that history, in that body of literature. Mm. So there's lots of interesting little asides, actually. One of the things that I thought was interesting, and I think it connects to this question of ambiguity and the kind of reading this novella makes you do. I was hyper aware of wondering what's the deal with the governess. Mm -hmm. So there were these asides that she says. So right at the beginning, she said, I had more pains than one. I was in receipt in these days of disturbing letters from home where mm -hmm. things were not going well. That's the last we hear of what happens at home. So we have no idea what's in the background. There's just these hints that make your mind kind of race and go off into various possibilities. There were a lot of very interesting and potentially fruitful, but potentially entirely fruitless seeds being planted throughout this story. Even the framing narrative, it isn't directly obvious why that matters. Why start like this? That's also from a first person, told in a first person point of view, but by an unnamed narrator. And then that narrator is the one who introduces that a character named Douglas is going to tell the story. And Douglas is going to tell it from a script that he's received from the governess, whom he has loved at some point or fallen in love with. And yet, when he continues to elaborate on why he needs to get this script, he says it's unreadable. And so he's actually already, <laughs> you know, committed it to memory. And so it's just yeah, it seems unnecessary. The whole group waits days for him to receive the script. And then we know that the story we get in a first-person point of view from the governess is being told by Douglas and yet apparently recorded by this other first-person perspective that's from an unnamed character. Yeah, yeah. And that by the end, Douglas will give the narrator the copy of the script, which is apparently unreadable. And so why does all that matter? I guess to set the scene as a ghost story, but you know, we don't know exactly why it matters or if it matters. And <laughs> we're looking through windows, we're looking at reflections in mirrors. Yeah. It's part of this. It's mm. part of what makes it kind of recede and feel more intangible. We don't know. There's so much information that could be lost in any one of these tellings. So it becomes more kind of numinous, I think. Mm. And the first person perspective is also told, it's also in the past tense. And so the governess will reflect what I didn't see then, but later I did see. Here's an example. She says, but these fancies were not marketed enough not to be thrown off. And it is only in the light or the gloom, I should rather say, of other and subsequent matters that they now come back to me. So she's also reinterpreting the events as she's telling them. So speaking of the complexity of this narrative situation... I was really interested by the ending of the novella, which I found really abrupt. It ends with Miles dying and then that's it. We don't go back to the frame narrative or anything. It just ends. Mm. And I think that's partly because it was published in serial form. So I read the Norton Critical Edition, 
where it tells you where the different parts ended and it always ends on a cliffhanger. So you get mm-hmm. the sense of, ah, this is why if you wanted to read on, ah, nicely done, James. Mm. But yeah, it ends with Miles. It, this is the last line. We were alone with the quiet day and his little heart dispossessed had stopped. And that's the end of the story. We don't get any aftermath or anything. That's where we leave the story. But in the build-up to that, I thought it was really interesting how the governess describes what's going on. She says that there's this ghost and she's trying to save the boy. And she almost describes it. She says dispossessed, you know, Mm -hmm. like Miles' little heart dispossessed, which suggests possession and perhaps a certain kind of exorcism. But she also talks in terms of possession and my children. Hmm. There's a lot in this last section where she's ostensibly questioning him about why he stole a letter that she wrote to his uncle. But she keeps clutching at him and holding him tighter Hmm. and letting him loose a little bit and then holding him. And she's describing his face as being feverish and sweat in his brow and him gasping and... I just think there's all kinds of possible interpretations that we could have, which is maybe she's trying to save Miles from, you know, eternal damnation. Maybe she's trying to save him from the ghost that she says she sees, but maybe she's suffocating him. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe she's crushing him and he's too small and hidden in this narrative is that possibility. And that's very terrifying because she thinks she's trying to save him or she's talking about trying to save him. But then when you remember how much she clutches at people mm. all the time, she's always like kissing them and clutching <laughs> at Mrs. Gross. And when she gets anxious, she grabs towards people. That's part of what makes James so astute, I think, psychologically, is that he's willing to probe possibilities behind clean moral exteriors and claims. Mm -hmm. And that's also part of what's so unnerving about the possibilities the book raises. Next up is a fantastic interview with Jonathan Warren about Henry James and the turn of the screw. Jonathan is a professor of 19th and 20th century American and British literature in the Department of English at York University in Canada. He is the editor of the third Norton Critical Edition of The Turn of the Screw, which has just been published this year. So we're wondering, when did you first read Henry James and what was it about his work that made you want to keep going to study his writings? I must have been 15 or 16 years old. I was in ninth grade in high school. I went to Hunter College High School in New York City. And English class at Hunter meant every few weeks or so, our teachers would, you know, roll in a cart from the book storage closet with a stack of laminated hardback versions of something new. Everything was new to us. We must have been doing some kind of informal unit on novels of growth and development, of Bildungsroman, because we had definitely just read Dickens' Great Expectations. And we were given The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. We were all, us 15 and 16-year-old Hunter students, pretty intellectually adventurous and even a little bit competitive with one another. And we always wanted to show that we were game for anything, not cowed by difficulty when it was put in front of us. And so 
James's style, with all of its prosy complexity, all of its super subtlety, it struck me first like a challenge from the teachers. And we liked a challenge. And since then, and especially since I've been a literature teacher myself, I've been occasionally amused to think back to that decision that was made in the high school curriculum about when to feature James and that particular James novel at that particular time, because The Portrait of a Lady tells the story of an able young woman, Isabel Archer. She's a New York girl from Albany. She is the epitome of the sort of extraordinary self-assurance that maybe us obnoxious 15-year-olds thought that we had. And she travels to Europe, where she turns down a marriage proposal by an attractive aristocrat. And then she inherits a fortune. And then she decides that she's going to set her own fate for herself. And she manages to screw it all up, (laughs) just to bungle it so entirely. All of which is to say, I like to think back to that decision about how all of us kids were ourselves such young and promising New Yorkers and that our teachers thought it might make a good impact to put a tale about that kind of comeuppance in front of us. You think you're pretty smart, huh? Well, here's a story about how it can all fall apart, kids, just because you thought you were so smart. I think that I definitely responded to that joke. And it's not just one that was being carried out maybe on the part of my teachers, but it's also a joke that is one of the points of James's novel. He creates a really promising, a really formidable character whose intelligence and exquisitely attuned thoughtfulness can be measured not by the scale of her achievements exactly, but on the basis of her mistakes. And the irony of the portrait of a lady is that its protagonist is held up for admiration by putting her through the ringer. And all of that felt really wry and devastating. And at the time, really funny, even though it was so grandiose and important and prosy. And so ever since then, I've really just loved what I think of as a Jamesian situation. James gives situations that are all ethical conundrums that take on different meanings depending on your differing point of view. There are always stories about that kind of multiplicity and diversity of points of view. And the turn of the screw is just a perfect one. It's such a relatable story. It's at base a tale about a new job, about feeling nervous and excited, about wanting to impress the boss, about having to manage a crisis for the first time. How about doing so when you're not sure whether you're working with all the information that you need and you're not sure if you can trust yourself to discern all of the facts and about the worry of whether you're screwing up or nailing it. And, you know, in tribute to the fact that he was supposedly this commander of prose form, Henry James is often by Jamesians, by scholars, customarily been referred to as the master right? The master, Henry James. And I don't know, to my mind, it's kind of like how we talk about Aretha as the queen of soul or Cher as the goddess of pop, but James is the master. But what appeals to me still always about his writing is that it often presents scenarios in which being a master or in which mastery or certainty are enticingly just out of reach and in which characters who aspire to mastery or to surety or to control always discover that those values are 
not what they thought they were. They find themselves in worlds in which what's finally knowable is always just delimited by your vantage point, your position, or what your expectations were. And that, I guess that's just how the world has always seemed to me. And so I really related to James at the start, or I mean, at this point, I can't tell whether it's that James just taught me to see the world that way since I encountered him so early. So that's what first grabbed me. And that's what keeps me going with James. Speaking about perspectives of readers, hmm. how do you think the effect of the turn of the screw has changed over time? Do you think its horrors are different for modern readers than they were for those who read it in 1898? It is such an interesting and important and ultimately telling question, specifically about the turn of the screw. Because where we end up, if I'm to answer that question somewhat chronologically, if we think about where we end up today and imagine that well, we would only ever have seen the tale this way in the 21st century because our, our contemporary sensibilities and sophistication and willingness to account for what seems so implicit about the tale's rather perverse implications about sexuality, and that that's something that it took until 1998, 100 years after the book was published, or you know, 2021 to really get to We'll discover if we go back to the very beginning that it was always thus, it was always there, but it was submerged for much of the 20th century for curious reasons about reputation and scholarly protocol and appropriateness. So before I talk about how sexuality may have entered into it and how that effect has varied over the course of its reception, it's worthwhile just to remember that in 1898, at the time of the novella's first appearance, the field of modern psychology was in its relative infancy. And at the time, reputable experts still continued to consider ghost hauntings and other what we would call paranormal phenomena as real scientific concerns. And psychologists were often ghost hunters, and ghost hunters were interested in paranormal psychology and seances. So the ways in which The Turn of the Screw features the interactions and interleaving of those seemingly disparate fields is an anachronism. We look back on and think that those fields were so discreet. In fact, the tale rather emulates the closeness, the proximity of those modalities at the end of the 19th century. Initial published reviews when the tale came out, so those reviews that appeared in magazines and newspapers, generally spoke most to how the tale made its readers feel. It was described as revolting, that it insinuated evil, that it was terrifying because of how it depicted child endangerment. Its morality was characterized as repulsive. And as responses to it migrated from the world of newspaper and magazine reviews into the academic sphere, much of the 20th century's critical reaction then took the form of a debate about whether everything that happens in the story is meant to be objectively accurate, whether all of the spiritual phenomena are real, or if it all might just be the byproduct of the overheated imagination of the governess at the center. James himself was really clear in his own writing about the tale that that debate between whether the ghosts are real or whether the governess is imagining them was 
a debate that the tale is obviously meant to provoke and that it obviously refuses to resolve. But nonetheless, a generation of critics beginning in the 1920s battle it out as though it can be resolved. We can understand the durability of that debate when we think about the broader questions that it helped really to abbreviate or to introduce or allude to along the way. It's obviously, I'm sure, quite clear to you when we talk about this, or the ghost real, or is it all in her head, that we're not just talking about whether ghosts are real, but whether women are reliable. Can you trust a, a female narrator? Does her erotic or emotional imagination interfere with her trustworthiness? Are men more authoritative than women? What does it mean to allow somebody from the lower orders, a working class girl, into a middle class or upper class home where she might introduce her own love-addled brain and its susceptibility to uh, superstition? And what kind of damage might she do to children? So gender, sexuality, socioeconomic class, reliability, all of these factors come into play in the midst of that debate about the governess's reliability. By the later part of the 20th century, so from the 1960s into the 70s, the debate had become so rich all on its own terms that while the turn of the screw continued to be a subject of critical attention, the critical attention to the turn of the screw became its own field of study. To me, you know, somebody who loves James but has always kind of been thrilled by the comicality of James's super nuanced, super sensitive framings of framings within framings, it's such a perfect Jamesian formation to have emerged. He gives us a tale that pretends that there is a debate that is solvable while telling us it cannot be solved. Around that debate emerges a whole critical class that is determined to do what the tale says it cannot do. And emerging on top of that is a further critical class that evaluates the proclivities of that critical class that misunderstands or disobeys the tale, which told what it was going to do so in the first place. That is just a, it's a James novel as a kind of critical performance. So by the seventies, a number of influential readers observed that James preempts one's ability to come down on one side or the other, that obliges, the text does, a kind of fantastical effect that makes us suspend our judgment and to persist with a kind of irresolution. And like all of the debaters about James's tale, the governess within the story wants to know something for sure. And the question, as she puts it, is, is Miles really bad? The tale's resistance to exposing Miles's backstory has itself been taken up as a recognizable suggestion of a particular kind of diagnosis. And this is where I come back to what I said at the beginning about sexuality in the story. What is the reason that Miles was expelled? What is this unnamed thing? What is this unutterable, fearful, unnamed cause. Well, in the 1890s, the tale's original milieu, it might have been plainly understandable as a euphemism for some sort of sexual misbehavior, maybe homosexuality. James wrote The Turn of the Screw in the immediate wake of the Oscar Wilde trials, and the governess's terrified worry that the children may have been corrupted by the attentions of previous servants who were much too free with them, 
and her supposing that Miles and Flora now have secret knowledge about things that children shouldn't know. All of this sounds to our modern ear and would have sounded at the time as a sort of code for feelings about the children's possible sexual precociousness. And all of that might be the result of this shocking legacy of imputed same-sex impropriety by the previous servants. So all of that starts to feel like a very carefully constructed homoerotic panic. And it intersects with 1890s period anxieties about the corrupted influence of nannies and governesses more generally, workers that come from the lower orders and might have freer, less moral standards when it comes to matters of sex and sexuality, all hired to work in the heart of the rising middle-class domestic space. If we think about these as changes in the novella's effect over time, it's easy to see that this thinking about pederastic passion is something that we arrive at in the 21st century, but you know, the unpublished first reactions to the tale in letters among James's friends and associates were really frank that they saw the tale in the 1890s as a story about lesbian love between Flora and her previous governess and about pederastic homoerotic passion between Miles and Quint. And it took much of the 20th century just to get back to those early understandings. I feel like James would have been pleased. He sort of masterfully spun a whole other tale indirectly through this turn of the screw. That's a really nice way to put it. I, I agree. So we, we've got your assent to that comment, but what about this one? Is The Turn of the Screw one of the books of the 20th century? Would you pick it out of James's body of work? Well, if we look at the way the New York Public Library creates its list, I think that it works really well. You know, the 20th century seems to have decided that The Turn of the Screw is one of the books of the century. A century worth of adaptations has continued to come out. The Turn of the Screw has been taken up in film and television and opera and ballet and graphic novels. And while I was working on the Norton Critical Edition, I found scholarship about the turn of the screw being adapted to video gaming and what the challenges would be there. So it is the gift that keeps on giving. And it's plainly preoccupied readers through the whole of the 20th century. But if we look at where the New York Public Library places it, First of all, he'd be thrilled to know that his beloved New York Public Library considers his enduring legacy one worth paying tribute to this way. But the New York Public Library places its only entry for a work by Henry James, the master of modern American prose, in the subheading for pop culture and mass entertainment. When I saw it, I just <laughs> laughed out loud, not because it's inappropriate, but because Oh my goodness, throughout his whole career, that's all he wanted. My God, <laughs> he was so keen to have scored a hit to be considered popular in mass entertainment. Sure, he thought it was all vulgar and sordid and he wanted to be thought of as a, as a great artist. But, you know, his late style, the books that came after Turn of the Screw, those major novels of the early 20th century, Ambassadors, The Golden Bowl, The Wings of the Dove, these are novels that have such florid, complicated, syntactically challenging, nuanced, immense paragraphs that James's reputation has tended to be associated with them, with difficulty, 
with challenging prose, with ornate style. And that way of writing can cause us to forget that he was so earnestly eager to be a commercially successful writer, to score big with large audiences, to earn wide acclaim. And in his lifetime, he did not have that kind of career. He did not know that he would be this kind of success. So to see him featured as a popular or mass entertainment writer with a turn of the screw listed in the same section as blockbusters like Gone with the Wind and Peyton Place, not to mention alongside the maybe more surprisingly apt Gothic horror comparators like Bram Stoker's Dracula or Stephen King's Carrie and my absolute favorite of the neighbors on this list, The Cat in the Hat. (laughs) This is a fantastic and welcome posthumous tribute to the author's ambitions. And I don't know, personally, I'm grateful to the New York Public Library for helping us to frame a conversation about the turn of the screw this way, because without that framing, I don't know that I would have ever thought about The Cat in the Hat as (laughs) what it is, after all, another sort of thriller about what happens when parents are not in the picture and when children are left to the supervision of a caretaker who doesn't have sufficient authority. In the case of the cat in the hat, it's that fish, the goldfish in the bowl. (laughs) And there's an astonishing visitation that upends (laughs) all norms and challenges the security and the placidity of childish good behavior and purity. So I think that not only does the turn of the screw belong on such a list, I'm delighted that it turns up on the list exactly where it does. It's an excellent choice. The turn of the screw grabbed readers from the get-go, no matter where it met those readers. And its circumstances, the ones it depicts, remain entirely relatable and utterly eerie and disturbing. And the tale evokes all the panics and insecurities about gender and class and sex, sexuality and knowledge and power. All of those topics around which 20th century understanding is organized. So absolutely, I would pick it and place it where it is. Why not? What a wonderful answer, Jonathan. Thank you so much. It was both enlightening and entertaining, which is (laughs) the best combination. Thank you. You're welcome. It's that time again. Alicia, the New York Public Library named this as one of its books of the century. Do you agree? For his mastery of the craft of writing, for his subtlety in representing human psychology, social dynamics, and affections, even moral affections, at a certain historical moment, yes, Henry James absolutely belongs on this list. But is the turn of the screw the book that I would pick from amongst his works. I tend to prefer the works that follow maybe Americans to a certain extent, but people abroad internationally in cross-cultural contexts and and follow the psychological complexities of those intersections across class and cultural boundaries. And so The Ambassadors, The Portrait of a Lady, 
I mean, these are the works that really stand out to me and stay with me. Mm. You know, they're certainly longer, so I can see why maybe there would be reason to put something shorter on a on a list. And maybe there's an appeal. The ghost story sort of genre doesn't appeal to me as much. So James, yes. The Turn of the Screw, no. And nevertheless, I'm glad that something by him is on this list. Fair enough. What about you, Erica? I am inclined to agree with you. But I would say that this novella, this short little book, has been incredibly influential not just in Gothic literature in the 20th century, but in film, actually. Its cinematic influence is really, really vast. It's not the first story of a haunted house or something like that. But I think that we can see echoes of Miles and Flora, two little preternaturally gifted and angelic, but maybe demonic children, in so many horror stories. I'm just thinking of The Others with Nicole Kidman from the mm. early 2000s, which has these two British children who are <laughs> slightly off in some way. <laughs> but if there's something about those, you know, the two children in this big haunted house, that's really iconic. I actually watched a really fantastic YouTube documentary on a channel called The History of Horror, which looks at the influence of The Turn of the Screw on horror cinema. Not just the actual adaptations like The Innocents by Jack Clayton from 1961, but also just in the kind of atmosphere, those questions of ambiguity and that feeling of psychological horror and suspense has been incredibly influential. So I think if we're talking in generic terms and genre terms, there's a really strong case for this book to be on a list of the gothic books of the century, perhaps. But I tend to agree with you. And I think something like The Ambassadors would probably be my choice. I think it's funny that we both gravitated towards the same book too. It's not an exaggeration to say that The Ambassadors changed my life or shaped me in profound ways. Studying it and talking about it in my English honors class shaped my kind of moral perception, I think. And my idea about what is a good life or what do I want to do? The answer, of course, is live. <laughs> live all you can. It's a mistake not to. <laughs> that little villain section stays with me and I come back to it and I feel like, like I can ride that James train. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree with you. I think The Turn of the Screw is a masterful story. I don't think that it would be the James that I would pick. It's behind you. It's in the trees. <laughs> <laughs> Before we fade out and disappear like specters into the gloom, <laughs> we'd like to thank Dara Downey and Jonathan Warren for talking to us for this episode. All original spooky music was made by me. <laughs> thank you, Erica, <laughs> for giving me the chills. <laughs> On the next episode, in two weeks' time, we'll be reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Want to read along? Please do. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on this novella or the episode. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter. We're at Literate Podcast. 
Email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share wherever you like to listen. Also, check out our list on bookshop.org, which is a really convenient way to order the books we're reading from indie bookstores. And as you think about where to get your books, please support your local library. And independent bookshop. Bookshop.